In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cammie and Sandy. Kristen Keffler is our guest this week on Money Tales. Kristen's family's money story launched when she was in her 20s. Her parents and oldest brother started a company, grew it, took it public, and sold it all within five years. In other words, during the period of time from when she went to college to when she graduated, there were a series of significant wealth events. As a result, Kristen's money narrative got more complex. She was trying to sort out many things like how did she want to define success? Was her current career path good enough? How should she be allocating time learning to be a steward of the family wealth? Kristen was in a big soup of confusion around identity as she sought to understand who she was as an individual, separate from her family contribution. Today, Kristen is a thought leader and consultant at the forefront of a global shift in family wealth advising known as Wealth 3.0. Kristen is the founder of the consulting firm Illumination 360 and the chief learning officer of the Johnson Financial Group. She specializes in human motivation and behavioral change, family dynamics, family governance, rising gen education and development, and intergenerational collaboration. Her recent book is The Myth of the Silver Spoon, Navigating Family Wealth and Creating an Impactful Life. Here are three key money tales Kristen shares in this conversation. First, how in the early days of the family's wealth, Kristen experienced many different feelings and realizes now that she struggled with the language to describe them. Kristen did a lot of work in the following years to address this. Second, how not getting financially saved can be a big motivator. When a business Kristen started was running low on cash, she told her parents about it. Rather than cut her a check, they offered to allow her to live in their basement to save money. Not wanting to be a basement dweller turned out to be the positive push Kristen needed. And third, how there was a period of time when Kristen was talking about money obsessively. Her now husband pointed out to her that much of what she was sharing was fear and concern. That conversation inspired Kristen to dig further into her relationship with money. We hope you share this episode with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now... Onto our conversation with Kristen Keffler. Welcome to the Money Tales podcast. I'm Cami Doder. And I'm Sandy Brager. Cami, I've been working with a couple for a really long time, and they have two children, the oldest of whom is a junior in college. She's getting her first internship this summer. It's paid. She'll be earning some money. And her parents asked me to have a conversation with her and begin to educate her around personal finance and specifically around investments. 
Ah, Sandy, how great. This was a particularly exciting ask because the parents have been reluctant to have conversations with their children about their wealth. And when I say their wealth, I'm talking about not just their financial resources, but this family has a lot of great connections. They have a long legacy within the family. There's just a lot of different things that they bring to the table. And they've been hesitant to bring their children into the conversation. So this was the first the first little seed of an opportunity to water. And I'm super excited about the conversation and, and what we're going to cover. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm just curious, do you have any insights into why the parents were hesitant to have this conversation? Yes, the parents have had some hesitation. It's mostly been the mom. Both parents grew up in very middle-class situations and they created wealth together during their marriage. The wealth that they've created, the financial wealth specifically, is new to them. And they're worried about it damaging their children. The mom in particular really doesn't want the kids to be entitled and and she wants to make sure that they're self-motivated. And her MO has been to back off on on having any conversations as a family or, or doing much to recognize the wealth that they have and the circumstances that they've been raising their children in today. Very common, actually. And I wanted to share this particular situation because of our guest today. She has a lot to say on this subject. So I'm delighted, though, that this family is ready to take this first step with the daughter. And these are really fun conversations for me and and the colleagues that we work with at Experience. Really fun to help young adults get ready for taking on their own financial agency. The Rising Generation, which we'll talk a lot about, I think, today. We'd like to welcome our guest, Kristen Keffler. Really appreciate you joining us on the Money Tales podcast. Thank you for having me, both of you. I I loved hearing that story, and it makes me really just, it anchors this such important point, which we'll get to, which is creating an individual money identity and, and having full agency in your relationship to money is an individual journey. It's also a family systems journey. We have incredible power as parents to help shift the narrative and the belief systems that our kids embody. And ultimately, that supports their ability to use skills in the world that will help them be more capable. And it's like an inside job and an outside job. And And parents have a huge amount of influence on that, as do advisors. Right. Well, what a perfect conversation for us to dive into. But before we do, Kristen, would you introduce yourself and provide a couple pivotal moments that you've experienced in your life that really impacted who you are today? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Kristen Keffler. I started a coaching and consulting business almost 20 years ago, specifically working with the rising generation and ultra high net worth families and enterprising families, which was super niche. And I'll I'll get to that in a minute, but my own money story is actually what led me to the work that I now feel so lucky to get to do. I grew up in a house where I think it was pretty unusual. There was always enough money. My dad was a C-level executive for all the years of me growing up and eventually an intrapreneur building businesses inside businesses. And then finally an entrepreneur building a business of his own with his own capital and some investor capital that they took public and sold. So that's like my family's wealth story in two sentences. But growing up, I'm the youngest of four. I have three older brothers. 
My dad was always pretty high drive and pretty motivated to create money just based on his own story, his own childhood. And money was going to be the sign that he had made it and that he had done the thing that many people told him that he couldn't. Interestingly, my mom, despite the fact that my dad was a high earner, like she just seemed entirely untethered to money as an important concept. And so I had this soup growing up where I always felt like I never was concerned that we didn't have enough We had good money skills. My parents were good about helping us with allowances and budgeting. And we had our own little money envelopes that we used for clothes and haircuts. And so I felt like I built some really good skills growing up. And I didn't internalize a lot of really negative money stories, which is I'm finding now in my adult life is pretty unusual to not have a really tangled relationship with it, right? And now it's not to say that I didn't have some things to untangle in my 20s, which I'll get to. So I think that was like this basis for me just really coming into adulthood with a pretty untangled relationship and decent skills, but not much worldly skills in terms of, um, I remember graduating from college and my dad saying, okay, like your car insurance is going to start coming to your house. And I was like, what? I have to pay for car insurance? There was some work to be done there that there's some gaps that weren't filled yet. That was me coming into my 20s. And then, as I said, my my family had had its own money story that really sort of launched in this time of my 20s, where mom, my dad and my oldest brother started this company, grew it, took it public and sold it all in like four or five years. And so in the period of time from when I went to college till when I graduated, there's these couple of wealth events that were pretty significant in my family's own narrative. And what was interesting was how we then started having family meetings to talk about estate planning. And like my parents were really trying to do a good job keeping us, giving us information so that we could be good stewards of these financial resources. But they were new to all of this as well. And ultimately, my money narrative got more complex in my 20s because of this and because of trying to sort out how did I want to define success? I looked at my dad and I was like, well, that's clearly, everybody says that's successful. I was getting a master's in public health. I was like, is that good enough? Is it good enough just to go be a public servant? There was this whole question of family philanthropy. How much time do I need to dedicate to to family philanthropy versus my own life versus learning to be a steward and understanding this landscape of newfound wealth? Big questions at that age, you know, to be hitting you. Yeah. Huge questions, right? Like in my 47-year-old self can look back and go like, oh, I can see how all these things ultimately were really helpful to my journey. But at the time, I can say that I it was a big soup of confusion around identity. Like who was I as an individual separate from my family? Contribution, what was my work path? Was it meaningful enough? Was it successful enough? There was just a relationship's Like, I don't know, when and how do you tell someone you're dating? Like, when do you bring them up to the ski home that my parents just built? Because as soon as you do that, then it's the like, what? What does your dad do? For me, there was just a lot that got sort of tangled up in there around personal identity and family wealth and my own money story. And the final piece that I think is important for our conversation is that really, While I didn't have a really tangled relationship with money growing up, I still had a very adolescent relationship with it. And it wasn't until my, I mean, I was competent in managing my personal finances, but I didn't, I hadn't really fully embraced the power of money and money in motion and the idea that 
I could really create a life and support it with money that I generated, right? There was this whole other like level two or level three understanding of the power of money and my power to generate it and to use it for meaningful things. Like that was like 3D chess compared to where I was in my 20s. Sounds like that was important to you. And I, if we can go back a little bit, you mentioned money was important to your dad and not so much to your mom. So how did that translate into your relationship with money as a kid? What was it to you? What's interesting is I look back now and I think, if you think about money archetypes and kind of how are we wired around money, I, from a very early age, I was naturally an accumulator. When we would get our allowances and get to put the money in, in our little envelopes, I loved seeing the envelope get thicker and thicker. We got money for lunches and for haircuts and for clothes. And I would walk home from school and go home for lunch so that I didn't have to spend it, right? So there was some natural accumulator part of me and that I think I must have internalized from my dad's messaging around security and the importance of generating money for security. My dad was very clear on things like don't carry debt, including as soon as he could pay off a mortgage, he did. He paid my parents' house off multiple times and he'd re-leverage it, use that for something for business, and then he'd pay it off. So I, I definitely internalized that, but my mom's influence around it, she was not irresponsible and she wasn't childish with it. Material things didn't matter that much to her. She loved experiences. I think I really got this sense of generosity and sort of freedom with money by watching her, but still very anchored in this accumulator part of me that like likes seeing the envelope get thicker. Oh, that's interesting contrast. Right? Yeah, for sure. And still today, that stuff I play with is this idea between between how do I, I love being generous and I love not being overly attached to money. Like I love being able to say like, ooh, we should do that. That would be a really great capital campaign to support or something we could do for our kids that would really be meaningful. And I love being able to do that. And there's also the part of me that likes seeing the bank account get bigger. <laughs> Because you just want that security and know, knowing that you have that rock there. So Kristen, this is so interesting. You're heading into adulthood with these strong foundations. And you said your father and your oldest brother started a business when you were in college, sold it by the time you were out of college. So those are pivotal years when you're really thinking about your own future as a financially independent person. These conversations that your family started to have when the business was being sold you said generated a lot of questions in your mind about your identity. And I'm curious, were you talking to your family about those questions? No, I didn't recognize that you could even talk about those things, right? I, I couldn't even put a pinpoint on the fact that those things were difficult or that I couldn't wrap my head around it, which ultimately, I think a lot of 20-somethings don't have, it's like you don't quite have the map of the world yet to even be able to see that that would be something that for me, it's like it was putting language to a feeling and the feeling just existed, but I didn't have the language. And so I didn't openly talk about my own experience with this, my own identity in the space of, of our family for many, many years after. What prompted you to ultimately get there? I ended up having the opportunity to do a lot of inner money work when I decided to leave. I had a job at a corporation. I was the director of health and productivity management, which was a something I loved getting to do. It combined my business degree and my public health degree. And But I really knew there was a higher 
calling. There's something else I really wanted to do. And ultimately it was this work that where I ended up coaching Rising Gen and then eventually working with whole family systems or around wealth and decision-making and, and finding a heartful, healed path towards wealth ownership and the use of wealth in the world. And but in my late twenties, I didn't, I didn't quite have the vision for all of that. I, I just knew that there was had to be other next gens that were not so different from me, who were curious and engaged and did not have the language, did not have the skills, did not have the roadmap for how to handle family wealth. So that's the journey I started to create. But what I didn't expect was in leaving my job, how much inner money work I was going to have to do in order to like build a business and run a business and not have income coming from an employer. And at that time, my parents had wealth, but they weren't passing that wealth down to us. But I knew there was a backstop there. And I remember a very key moment when about 18 months into to having left my job and starting in my coaching work that I expected I would be solvent by then and that I would be covering my expenses, but I was not. And I was getting down to the end of my liquid savings and I was going to have to tap into retirement money, which would have been really expensive to do at that time. I was like 27 or 28. And and I remember having a conversation with my parents and we were on the back patio of their house. We were looking at this lake and the sun is going down and my dad's saying, well, how's it going? And I was like, oh my gosh, I've been working so hard. I've been getting some good leads. Things are starting to happen, but not fast enough. And I'm telling them like, I have like two months left of paying my mortgage before I'm like out of money. And I remember thinking like having this sort of flitter of a thought that like, they're going to be my backstop. They're not going to let me dangle out here. And I'm telling them the story. And my dad was like, we are so proud of you. Like, we know you have this and we are always in your corner. And I could feel myself start to exhale. And then he says, and you know, mom and I have your back. And if you need to, you can always move into the basement. The kiss of death. That's interesting. I love it. Right. And now I understand what, what happened for me. It, it was that I went home. That was a Friday night. I went home and on Monday, I just got busy doing the really hard stuff on following up on leads, having really hard <laughs> you were conversations. Motivated. Yeah. I was like, I'm going to make this happen. And I did. I got some significant contracts to do some work that like gave me enough of a lifeline. And if I had, if my dad that night had written a check, I don't know if I would have overcome the fear to really follow up and be in those conversations. And how much longer would I have drug out that thing that I needed to do, which was to really own the vision and invite people into it. Would you describe what did you do for this inner money work? Would you bring that to life for us? It was a really pivotal time of life that my part of it was the stuff that particular moment with my parents, where I really realized that I 100% had their emotional support and I was not going to have their financial support. And it's like, that's actually pretty incredible parenting, quite honestly. I, one of the things that I found, Cammy, was that I, in this period of time where like I, you know, I'm an accumulator, right? So I'm watching my savings go down, down, down. And I was like, I believe in me. I believe in me. Like, yeah. come on. And um, I found the person who was now my husband, we were dating at the time. I remember him telling me on a bike ride one day, he was like, do you realize that almost every conversation we have revolves around money? I was like, what? And he's like, he's like, you talk about it all the time. You obsess about prospects you have, what's coming in, what's not coming in, how much you're spending, your grocery bill last week. And 
I was like, wow, like he's right. That was the trigger for me to start to do. I went and read George Kinder's book, Seven Stages of Money Maturity. I went and read The Soul of Money. There's a handful of others that were all really important for me to like step out of this, like what was a very tight relationship with money. Like I was at that moment, I was very much feeling like I had to hold on tight. I'm going to see you with your envelope. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, it was like the envelope was disappearing. It became this deep inner journey of creating rituals. So I knew that I still needed to, to be smart about money, but I needed to not have it take up so much space. It was taking up a lot of negative space that I could be using for other things. And so among the many things that I did and a lot of the reading I did is I decided that I was going to create a ritualized time each month to engage with money. And I was going to be very intentional and thoughtful about how I did that. So I picked the the day of the month that I was going to reconcile my books and I lit a candle and I had some good snacks and I like very intentionally was like, okay, this is a privilege to be able to reconcile these books, see how you're spending your money with your values, honor the money that's coming in, even if it doesn't feel like it's enough right now. I love this, Kristen. This is amazing. It's amazing. I'm personally writing down (laughs) notes that I'm going to follow on my journey. It was really a powerful thing to realize that one, I could change my narrative and I could change my relationship to money by choosing to enter through a different doorway and really have it be one of gratitude to really trust the flow that was coming in and recognize that I, the money I was spending, I was spending on things I valued, like my home and groceries. And when everything was reconciled and things were done, I would blow out the candle and I would say a little prayer of gratitude And then I worked really hard to not have money be up in my head all the time. I was like, I've already set a budget. I know what I'm doing. I'm going to continue to like buy groceries and buy gas and not freak out every time I pull out my credit card. And it did not take very long before I started feeling this tidal wave shift of how I felt around money. And so that was like, that was a really pivotal time. And to like get to the place where, you know, the metaphorical envelope was so lean. I'm so grateful that my parents did not come in and save me because I wouldn't have felt, I wouldn't have gotten to that place in me that needed to do that work and shift the story so that I knew that I could own my own. But like I, I mentioned earlier, like my ability to, to generate income based on work that is deeply meaningful to me is part of a virtuous cycle that for me, it's even not about the money. It's about just this cycle of being in something that is, it's bigger than that. It's bigger than transaction. Kristen, how would you describe your relationship with money today after having gone through this experience years and years ago? I do have a very healthy relationship with money. I feel like I I interact with it well, like I don't have to have the ritual anymore. I can really like be with it. And it feels very, I cannot think of a time that I have a negative thought about money and its role in my life. I love that my husband and I are able to have conversations about like big dollar things and little dollar things and really be thoughtful about even as our nest egg has continued to grow and my earning has has grown exponentially over the years so that I don't feel the rough edges of the envelope. I still feel like 
We spend money based on our values. We're not wasteful. So when we have a subscription that's like, we don't even use that subscription anymore. Why don't we cancel that? We're very clear about that. And I feel like being grounded in the values of really being tuned into that still is really very helpful for me while being able to lean into the bigger amounts of money and feel like, oh, I can move that in the world in even bigger ways. It's more powerful. And that feels really incredible. What an amazing journey. Kristen, you recently authored a book, The Myth of the Silver Spoon, Navigating Family Wealth and Creating an Impactful Life. And we would love for you to share what brought you to write this book. Yeah. So you can imagine. So this book is written for the rising generation in affluent families and enterprising families. So families that own operating businesses and those who have sold operating businesses and have liquid affluence. And it's also for their parents and it's for their advisors. My motivation to write this is in part my own story. There's a codification of my own journey of being a a second gen in my family that I realized I wasn't alone. Like my journey of trying to figure out my identity, my exploration around money. And though I think that my pile of money clutter was pretty small compared to a lot of the rising gen I work with. I still had money clutter to unpack as I just shared with you guys. And so in the last 30 years of my own story, and then the last 18 years of working with Rising Gen and their families, I realized that there's some very common tripwires that those kids who are raised in affluent homes have in common. And yet, culturally, we don't have a very healthy, conscious relationship with money and definitely not with this concept, this abstract concept of wealth. And as a result, even though there's these common tripwires that can really create a difficult journey for for kids raised in affluent situations, we don't have a lot of safe spaces to talk about them, to talk about these common psychological experiences where they they question the authenticity of friendships. They question whether who they are and what they do is is enough. Is it good enough? This sense of being paralyzed by too many possibilities. If you don't have to just go get a job to pay rent, but you could go to graduate school and you could work for the family foundation and you could work for the business. I don't know if I really love any of those options. Like that paralysis by possibility is a real thing. Easy to get lost in all of the opportunity easy to get lost. And without the financial imperative to have to go work, we think that that eliminates the human need to work. There still is a wired in human need for contribution. And all of this gets mucked up into this mess of stuckness that a lot of rising gen experience. And then we project a stereotype onto them and say, oh, look, yep, typical trust fund baby. Yep, the current Nepo baby term, which just makes my skin crawl. Anytime you put a term like that with baby and you infantilize an adult, it's very diminishing. And I feel like as society, we project all sorts of things onto these families and onto these, these rising gen that aren't fair and that don't give enough space for them to actually do their own healing work so that eventually they could actually have such a strong, healthy relationship with the money they have access to that they could do incredible things with it. But instead, it's a unique situation to be raised in. From the outside, everybody thinks you have it made. But on the inside, there's not a lot of space or resource to untangle the places that you don't feel like you have it made. Yeah, so it's a psychologically fraught situation. 
So Kristen, it's it's not easy for this rising gen, and they're living in a world of judgment, assumptions, where they have it all, they shouldn't complain, and they have some very similar challenges in their own challenges. What are your key recommendations to this rising generation? I just want to add one thing to your important question in the tee-up, and that is that in the experience that I've had professionally with our clients who have historically been wealth creators, the parents don't even understand the situation that their children are in. So I just wanted to add that piece because I think it's a very important. Yeah, and it actually goes back to, Cammie, I'll respond to your question in a little backwards way because it goes back to the story, Sandy, that you were sharing at the beginning about the parents who finally felt ready to have this conversation with their daughter. And Jim Grubman, who is a well-known family wealth consultant, wrote the book called Strangers in Paradise, where he really talks about this idea of wealth creators being like immigrants to a new land, right? They're immigrants to the land of wealth. And in America right now, about 80% of wealth is new wealth, generate not dynastic wealth. And so parents very often are trying to parent in a paradigm where they have no role modeling. They don't know how one might do this, right? What conversations are okay to have? How do you make sure that you are appropriately transparent without being demotivating? And so very often parents want to do the thing that's natural, which is to protect their kids so they don't share anything, which also creates a confusing narrative around money because it's like, I can look around our life, I can see what we have in some form, And yet we're not talking about any of this. Kids and teenagers and young adults are always just trying to make sense of it all. And when there's information that's not being revealed that seems like it needs to be acknowledged, that is also confusing. To answer your question, Kami, I think it's a both and. I think it's both that each one of us and every rising gen has the opportunity to claim their own life and decide, what have I inherited in terms of beliefs and habits and narratives around money, serve me well that I would adopt and consciously adopt, then what might I let go and what might I choose to do instead so that I can create a healthy, really healthy space for my relationship with money and pass that on to my kids. Every rising gen has the opportunity to do that. There's a couple of chapters in the book where I, I write specifically to parents to help them understand that the landscape of parenting and affluence feels like it should just get easier, but it actually conforms to the behavioral economics inverted U-curve, which tells us that there's no such thing as an unmitigated good. Gaining financial means does make parenting easier when it means that you are no longer worried about food security and a secure neighborhood and good schools. When you can make a stable environment for your kids, it does make parenting easier, But there's a point at which that curve actually starts to go back down and it's harder because you can no longer rely on external circumstances to help your kids build character strengths and skills that are essential for their development. And money becomes the buffer that when not intentionally used can get in the way of your kids building those skills. So I think it's a both and question answer to the question, which is there's individual work that each rising gen can do to create their own space and their own healthy relationship with money and wealth. And then there's family systems work where parents can be really thoughtful about 
what are they trying to parent for? And how can money really be a tool for that rather than something that's just the crutch you lean on because you have more than enough of it? Sometimes offering the basement rather than writing the check really does make a difference. Yep, exactly. (laughs) Kristen, as our conversation comes to a close, I want to quote something from your book. This really struck me and I think it's just a really nice way to begin to wrap up the conversation. You say, letting go of who you have been in order to make room for who you are becoming is scary work, but it's so worth it. And I thought that was so encouraging. And this is a fantastic book. I think everybody should read it. Thank you. Thank you for being in conversation with me about this stuff. I feel like the work that you do with Money Tales is mission aligned with my own, where the goal is really to create space for conversation and increased consciousness and awareness around money and its role in our lives. And the more we can unstick the sticky parts, the more that we can make it such a powerful force for all good things. Kristen, with that alignment in mind, what's your next money conversation going to be? And who's it going to be with? I think the next money conversation I have is likely going to be with my husband. We have a big landscaping project going on that's been sort of a nail biter in terms of like, we didn't think we were going to spend this much. And um, <laughs> welcome to landscaping work. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> and I know that we have a really big check coming up to write. And I want us to both feel really, I want us to both feel really aligned with writing that check and feeling really good about what we're creating. So I think there's a little unsticking that we probably both have to do around sinking into actually like making that happen. Mm, Kristen, that's great. Would you tell our listeners how can they find you and your wonderful book, The Myth of the Silver Spoon? So my website is one way. It's Illumination360, so I-L-L-U-M-I-N-A-T-I-O-N, 360.com. And then I'm active on LinkedIn. So it's Kristen Keffler, K-E-F-F-E-L-E-R on LinkedIn. Excellent. Kristen, thanks so much for sharing your stories, bringing them to life. This is such an important topic, not even just for the wealthy. I think there's cause for everyone to hear this story and have greater understanding. So thank you so much. And thanks for joining us on Money Tales. Thank you, Cami and Sandy. This was super fun as I thought it would be. So thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at asperient.com. See you next time. Thank you.